0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyez Jiwa. Despite having a chronic illness from childhood and having major surgery and having to take medication throughout the rest of her life, Sneha Dave has managed to achieve a great deal in her 23 years. To date, she runs international conferences and lead teams able to make an enormous difference to the lives of patients with chronic illness. It was a joy to spend Time getting to know Sneha Dave. Sneha Dave, you're very welcome to the show. And I was just saying to you before we started that you're one of the youngest people we've had on the program. So you're very, very welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How old are you now and what brought you into the world of advocacy?
1: I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, which is a chronic inflammatory bowel disease when I was six years old, probably a little bit younger than six, but I was officially diagnosed when I was six years old. So I had a pretty severe diagnosis. I was very sick throughout elementary school post-diagnosis. And I think in general, the younger you get it, the more severe it tends to be in many cases. So I was on a lot of steroids, on a lot of really hard medications that really, I think, took a toll on the development of my body, both physically and also emotionally. But it wasn't until middle school, when I was in sixth grade, that my disease became the most severe that it had throughout its the history of it. So that's when I started partial schooling. And that's when I really started entering the hospital quite a bit more. And this was a flare up that would last about five years. I and mean, I didn't know it would last that long, of course. But I tried so many of the biologics, so many of the medications throughout this period. And yeah, I, there was nothing that really worked for me just because of how aggressive my condition was. And I also think my, I was very lucky. So, my family, we tried a lot of different alternative therapies, lots of diets, probably way too many to count, honestly, and some that were very unpleasant. But I was lucky that I had parents that would encourage me and really find ways to try therapies in conjunction with the. Western therapies that I was already or had to be on. And then my freshman year of high school is when I was the sickest I'd ever been. So I weighed a little under 60 pounds and I'd go to the hospital every single week to get infusions and just everything that I could do to kind of really keep alive at that point. And I had a pick line a couple of times. So I was getting fed via the IV nutrition. And then my the middle of my freshman year of high school, I had Uh, The colectomy surgery, which is the removal of my large intestine. So that was the first phase. So I had the ostomy bag, which is basically when a piece of your small intestine sticks out of your stomach and that's where you use the restroom from. So that was a very interesting adjustment from having to use the restroom sometimes over 20 times a day to suddenly, you know, using the restroom through my stomach basically. And so after that, I had a couple other surgeries. So now I live with a J pouch, which is basically when. My small intestine is in the shape of a J and I use can use the restroom normally so I don't have an ostomy bag anymore. So I was told that after the colectomy surgery that I would be basically cured of ulcerative colitis and that was not the case. So I still live with inflammation in my J pouch and I still have to be on biologics. I've tried two and I'm on my second one. And I have a couple of other undiagnosed rare conditions as a result of ulcerative colitis, but I'm on the whole, in a much, much better place than when I had my colon.
0: Well, first of all, I'm so pleased that you look and sound so much better than what you're describing, which is really fantastic. But I want to talk a little bit about how you then went into advocacy. What was life like for you at that stage? And why did you feel so strongly that you needed to become an advocate?
1: So I'm from Indiana, maybe not the most exciting state in the United States, but. You know, where I was, there's not a lot of support in terms of just finding other people my age. I mean, I think in general, when we think about adolescents and young adults, there's just not enough support and resources for this age demographic. So I think a lot of organizations have focused on kids and adults, but nothing for this in between, which is, you know, arguably one of the most important time periods of development and just figuring out identity this idea of building resiliency to to be able to thrive into adulthood. And so knowing that at that time, when I was in high school, I really wanted to find others my age. So me and my late best friend, Corey Lane, he passed away with osteosarcoma, which is bone cancer, and then um, Crohn's disease. We had known each other because he had Crohn's and I have colitis, which is very similar. They're both inflammatory bowel diseases. And so he was then diagnosed with osteosarcoma and He was really the only other person that I had known that was my age that also lived nearby. And just being able to find that connection was very, very life-changing for me in terms of reducing isolation because I barely went to school. I couldn't relate to any of the people my age because I was going through something very dramatic that was affecting me 24-7 and I wasn't able to just turn that off and go to school. So just having that peer connection was very valuable and very important. And I realized that there are so many other people similar to myself that also did not have this connection originally, not only connection, but also the resources to learn about how to navigate high school, how to navigate college, how to navigate the workplace with a lifelong condition that's often very unpredictable. And so that's why I created the Health Advocacy Summit, which I'm still running right now, And it is a nonprofit that facilitates events, meetings, and programs for young adults with all different chronic and rare conditions. But my advocacy started out more so with IBD advocacy, which is the first endeavor that I created in high school with my late best friend, which was the Crohn's and Colitis Teen Times, now the Crohn's and Colitis Young Adults Network, which is a program through the Health Advocacy Summit.
0: Tell us about a specific instance in which you think that you would have benefited from the kind of work that you're doing now. A real life instance of something that happened to you that underlined to you the importance of this work.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think one of the biggest things was the idea of having major surgery at an age where you can't really look back. So for example, with the colectomy surgery, you can't you can't get another colon. That it's, There's no transplant for a colon. And so just thinking about this, I've At least 60 plus years to live, hopefully, of course, but just thinking about that timeline and recognizing that I'm so young and I, you know, this is my only chance to really have this organ, I guess. And it sounds kind of silly, I guess, from the outside to think about why I would be thinking like 60 or 70 years far out, but just not knowing anyone that had a major surgery my age was very isolating and fear inducing in a lot of ways. So just being able to talk to someone, I think that not necessarily would have even had the same surgery but just have has had some sort of surgery or some sort of life changing event i also think the older you get with the chronic condition i think the more you realize that this is not something that's going to go away and that can be very emotionally draining and i think as someone who was diagnosed when i was 6 it didn't really occur to me until adolescence that this would be for the rest of my life this is not something i can take away so i think at that point too it's it's really helpful to just find someone your age because again it is just very isolating to be at an age where most people don't have to worry about the rest of their lives.
0: What is it about that company, that ability to to discuss it with somebody who has walked that path that makes it so much easier?
1: I think even younger ages it's hard to understand your medical professional and it's hard to to really be around people that are so much more older than you that have a lot of decisions in their hands. Because when you're at that age too, it's you, know, you, you can't necessarily make all the decisions for yourself. I mean, obviously you have a say in them, you have a, a huge part in, in these decisions, but for the most part, everything just feels like it's an adult versus an adolescent system. And there's no one to really talk to that is similarly a little bit confused and uncertain about what's going on But at the same time, knows that we don't really have another option. There's only a few routes to go with particular chronic conditions. I guess even more so just discuss the feelings around certain therapies, certain surgeries is really powerful, even more so than understanding exactly what's going
0: on. When you talk to medical professionals about this, and clearly you will do as an advocate and amongst the other advocates, what do you say to them? to help them to navigate this journey with their patients?
1: We've spoken at quite a few conferences for medical professionals. And I think the greatest thing that we try to emphasize is to look at, a, at patients as a person and just recognize their holistic lives. So especially during adolescence, young adulthood, there's so many, so many factors that we're exploring for the first time. So that might be education, workplace, relationships being financially independent for the first time. And there's so many stressors, I think, in general in a young adult's life, but adding in a chronic condition can really dramatically make that more challenging. So I think just recognizing that there are so many factors in that come into play and also thinking about what's important to the young adult in the current moment, whether that's just being able to complete college, pursue graduate school in the future. So really meeting the patient where they are rather than Just trying to figure out what you think is best for the patient. And I think sometimes if medical professionals are able to put into words what accomplishing a surgery or accomplishing a therapy might mean for the patient, I feel like there's a lot more opportunity for a better relationship and maybe even better medication adherence because that the young adult will see taking their medications on time as a way to be able to achieve their education or whatever they really want to achieve. Education is obviously not the only thing. In our lives, and definitely not for everyone, and and so. But I just think medical professionals to be able to put into words what what it means to be able to live holistically with a chronic condition, not just having the chronic condition at the center of our lives.
0: With a chronic condition, you are faced with making decisions that you may not appreciate at the time because you're facing, you know, major surgery medication adherence, as you say, where you're having to take these tablets so many times a day on time, but emotionally and physically, you may not be equipped to handle that decision. How do you think health professionals can help in that situation?
1: With medication adherence in particular, I think it is a team effort and it's not something that can be learned overnight. And I think that's the biggest thing is that transitioning into adulthood adulthood i guess in general is not something that is just a complete 180 it takes time and it takes effort for example for myself there was a loss of continuity of care for me from when i went from pediatric to adult care and i think that that was something that should have been addressed maybe when i was 13 years old and just you know starting to put more responsibility on an adolescent to to self manage rather than just automatically within a, one appointment, transferring them into adulthood and expecting them to know everything. I think that's the biggest overwhelming sense is all of a sudden being in a, the adult system, automatically having to take control of appointments and stuff like that is is unrealistic to expect from an adolescent or young adult. So I think it really is a process that should start early 13 or is what they what a lot of medical professionals say. And I think I completely agree. Just being able to slowly put in more responsibilities for the adolescent, I think, makes the transition so much easier to adulthood.
0: You will have had some unfortunate experiences, but also some good experiences when it comes to medical care. Can you talk a bit about what made the good experiences good?
1: Being able to find specialized medical care has been truly life-changing in so many ways. I was not able to have as many specialists locally in Indiana. so. For the past couple of years, I've been also getting partial care in New York City. And that has allowed me to just be more aware of my specific conditions. So J pouches are not well researched. And so being able to go to specialized centers is a real privilege just in general in the US, but also has allowed me to understand my condition a bit more and potentially, I think, get uh, better treatment in some respects. So I've been very grateful to have that experience to be able to travel to get care. And that's something that telehealth, especially this past year, has opened so many doors, but now those doors are shutting because of insurance issues across state lines. So
0: tell us a little bit about your advocacy work then, because that clearly is a big part of your journey thus far. How has that unfolded for you?
1: The Health Advocacy Summit. So I created that During my freshman year of college at Indiana University, and I graduated from college last year. So I brought together about 14 young adults in the state of Indiana, and we discussed topics such as vocational rehabilitation, so navigating the education system, what that looks like in high school versus college. Here in the U.S., there's a lot of different laws. Sometimes they're not implemented very thoroughly, or people just don't know about them, but we have 504 plans. And we are also, we have legal rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Rehabilitation Act. So we try to educate, we tried during that event to educate also about these accommodations that are rightful for any young adult, any student with a chronic condition. And then we also had psychologists come and open up a discussion about mental health. So just thinking about the isolation that comes about with living with a chronic condition. And I think in Indiana and especially mental health is not addressed nearly as enough as physical health is. And we already know, I mean, there's so many statistics about how mental health and, and chronic condition go hand in hand. And just the idea of the isolation, the anxiety, the uncertainty that comes with living with a lifelong condition. And then we also had a session about health policy. So health policy issues in the state of Indiana that most affect access to care for young adult patients here in Indiana. And then we built a website. We got interest from other states to expand to their area. So in 2018, we expanded to South Texas in the Rio Grande Valley. So South, South Texas, 10 minutes away from the border of Texas and Mexico. And then we also expanded to North Carolina in conjunction with Duke University, and then in 2019, we expanded to San Francisco. And then in 2020, we were supposed to be in six different states, but all of those got canceled. We were so close to Boston, which was supposed to happen in the middle of March last year. So the pandemic has, you know, we definitely obviously wish very different circumstances, but it has allowed us to reach even more young adults around the world and especially across the U.S. too. And it has just made our programming more accessible and more general too. So now we do six virtual support meetings per month. So these are open to young adults with chronic medical disabilities all around the world. And so some of these are topic specific and some of these are just casual bases where young adult patients can meet each other and have that support during a time where I think support is just even more important now. But this is something that we will keep even post-pandemic because we've seen the value of connecting young adults different areas, different states, but still having that same connection of of chronic illness. And then we also do programming in higher education and civic engagement. So in higher education, we worked with the American College Health Association to develop guidelines for high-risk students and just thinking about you know, even specific cleaning supplies that were used during the pandemic and how some of us have chemical sensitivities to those. And just yeah, just so many things that wouldn't have been taken into account by a lot of universities and seeing how we can use our experiences for developing better systems within the institutions of higher education. And this is something that we will be expanding upon, especially because flexible education, online education is something that could really benefit a lot of our demographic. And so we hope to continue building upon our higher education programming. And then We, of course, also did a lot with civic engagement last year. So absentee ballots, voting from home, just developing resources on how all of that works, especially because a lot of us, voting has just been made very inaccessible here in the United States for a lot of reasons. And so just getting resources to a lot of young adults on how to vote is, is something that we also did. And then we also do our international virtual summit. So we've done two. We had our second one this past August. So we're still gathering statistics for that. But Last year, we brought together a little over 300 young adults with chronic and rare conditions from around the world. And we had speakers such as Caitlin Ohashi, who's a former UCLA gymnast with ulcerative colitis. She had a viral floor routine. That was just really cool to have someone like that uh, speak at our event. And then we had one of the co founders of Uber as well, who also lives the chronic condition, speak at our event. And we had sessions from everything from entrepreneurship with a chronic illness to mental health to global health policy. And then this past year, we had sessions focused on body image with a chronic illness, again, global health policy, confidence, training, yeah, mental health, and then working with a chronic illness, higher education. So this year was a two day event. And then we also had. Selma Blair from Legally Blonde provide opening remarks for this past summit, which was really exciting because Selma Blair lives with multiple sclerosis. Um, and so she talked about walking on the red carpet with a cane and you know how she felt empowered to be who she really was publicly. And that was just really empowering for especially our age demographic, I think, to hear from. And so we also will plan on continuing our virtual summits in 2022. We're going to be starting our in-person summits again in two states focused on rural communities. So bringing together communities that might not otherwise have access to broadband or they might not be able to otherwise find resources or connection. And so we'll be doing two summits in 2022 in Indiana and in South Texas. And then the Crohn's and Colitis Young Adults Network is a whole separate thing, but which is of course focused on inflammatory bowel diseases in specific. So,
0: I'm not quite sure what to say, to be honest, there is so much that you have done and accomplished in a very short space of time. Where do you get the inspiration from? Where do you get the energy from? And how do you resource all of this work?
1: I feel very lucky that I have an incredible team. So Sydney Reed, our operations director, she came on in 2019 and she's also a young adult with various chronic conditions. So I think that is where I get a lot of I think the motivation to keep going is just that I'm surrounded by an incredible team and we all have such personal experiences with the issues that we are working toward which is really I think exciting and then Sydney has built built this with me for the last couple of years and it's and it's really incredible to see the way that we're able to complement each other in our different experiences but also our similar experiences growing up with chronic conditions and then we are also as an organization we Are one of the very few, very, very few patient advocacy groups that does not accept funding from the industry. So we don't take pharmaceutical industry funding, insurance industry funding, or hospital industry funding. And that's, I think, an issue that's, of course, very prominent in the US is the rising cost of prescription medications and just the inaccessibility of healthcare in general. And so we've taken a stand to really ensure that we can be as ethical as we can and as independent as we can as an organization to best serve our demographics needs. So we are funded by foundations such as the Helmsley Charitable Trust and the Lumina Foundation and a couple of others. We're very excited. We just got a grant to start a new top secret project a little bit later this year, which we're really looking forward to announcing.
0: it has to be remembered in reflecting on what you're saying that you all, many of you have a chronic illness with all that that involves the physical and psychological sequelae of that condition so how do you manage to do that when you are also obviously taking medications and having relapses or whatever happens to be
1: the way we work is not like 9 to 5 so we work really whenever we can we work quite a bit probably a little bit too much for the couple of people that that run this but we don't have like a set schedule we do calls whenever works for us and that sort of thing. But in general, I think this is something that we are so inherently passionate about that it's just so much easier to do than any other any other job or any other profession. And I also think the impact that we're able to see just makes everything so much more worth it. Just seeing like the people who come to the support group and seeing them share a little bit more and more every time that they come, is just really cool.
0: Sneha Davi, I'm not quite sure how to end this conversation. You have achieved so much in the time that you've been working on this project. You make such a difference to people with chronic illness and you do so, you say, without accepting funding. You do so with the support of people who are like-minded. You are making such a difference. And all I can say is, I hope we will have another conversation very, very soon.
1: Thank you so much. It was it was such an honor to be on
0: today. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the journal of healthdesign.com.